Hello and welcome back to Tani Talks Life, the TTL, brought to you by the Tani Talks Podcast. This is the sheer where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic, hey, what's with the ego? All of my podcasts of the TTP, Tani Talks Parsha, TTPA, Tani Talks Pirke Avos, TTD, Tani Talks Staff, TTOT, Tani Talks OT, and this live show are now hosted by JewishPodcast.fm. Our new site, come join us on this amazing platform. If you're interested and curious, you want to start a podcast, please feel free to reach out to me, JewishPodcast.fm, a wonderful website that I am involved with and I am Happy to lead you along the way. It is super easy. The shows are also on different podcast forums, including iTunes Podcast, Google Podcasts, and most recently, Yitpod as well, an amazing podcast app service, which is basically the sister program to JewishPodcast.fm. It is the Jewish Podcast app service downloaded today on the App Store. Support and follow the Tani Talks podcast. We now have a fundraising campaign. We have a crowdsourcing campaign. Please feel free to join us. The Chesedfund.com 1S slash Tani Chesedfund 2S's slash the Tani Talks podcasts. Join us in a future where we go bigger, better, and do more with your support and your help. As a side note, a great way to hear many podcasts in kosher clean Jewish radio is Naki Radio. I am a huge fan. Naki means clean in Hebrew. They have amazing content, amazing stuff, 100% kosher and clean. We have a device, fantastic. We love it. It is an awesome device with an awesome website with new podcasts, new material coming daily. Get yours today at NakiRadio.com. I also want to give a PSA, a heads up. Usually on most of my shows, I take a midwinter hiatus, a mid-year hiatus for about a month and a half or so. God willing, we will also be taking a brief hiatus. For the first time, we will be taking a brief hiatus from the Tani Talks Life as well for a few episodes or so. God willing, we hope to be back after the hiatus God willing, in the future. We hope you had a happy Tubishvat and that you and your family should grow like trees in the field full of good things in the tree of life. And the Torah is the tree of life. Grab hold of it and stay tuned. This year is dedicated that Hashem should protect all of Am Yisrael from all viruses and all sicknesses and all outbreaks, current one included. It should also be for the Rafua and Yeshua of anyone who wants or needs. Lastly, I am reachable anytime at MaximumTEE at Yahoo.com. Growing up as a kid, it's hard for us to really understand. It's when we are kids, when each of us are a kid, it's really hard for us to really understand that there's a whole large world out there aside from us. We think in an egocentric way how we are the center of the universe, the center of the earth. What do you mean, Abba, you can't answer me now? I'm not the only person on earth. What do you mean you have to take care of this or work or what, what, what? It's hard to understand that we are not the center of the world, that there are other people out there. Unfortunately, not many people grow up and they continue to think that way for their entire life without being awakened to the fact that there are many things out there, many people out there. Even as a grown adult, quote-unquote grown adult, people don't understand that and people are stuck in said ways, stuck in egocentric, egotist ways. And we're going to talk about the different forms of the word ego and what they mean. It reminds me of the idea talked about in Sanhedrin 37, that everyone should think about the idea that the world was created for me. Bishvili nivra ha'olam. 
Bishvili nivra olam. That phrase could easily play to our ego and make us haughty. But really, we are not supposed to have an ego, even if we are great, even if we are awesome. When we realize we are a small, tiny being in the history of the world, the question becomes and should become, hey, what's with the ego? Wikipedia points out different ways to define the word ego. The first explanation that I like to look at, that I like to think of, is the psychological explanation. When I was an undergrad in YU, I took psychology. That was my bachelor's. We had different courses in psychology. So when we think about the first way of looking at the ego, we could look at how Wikipedia looks. The id, ego, and superego are a set of three concepts in psychoanalytic theory describing distinct interacting agents in the psychic apparatus defined in Sigmund Freud's structural model of the psyche. The three agents are theoretical constructs that describe the activities and interactions of the mental life of a person. In the ego psychology model of the psyche, the id is the set of uncoordinated instinctual needs and wants. The superego plays the critical and moralizing role, and the ego is the organized realistic agent that mediates between the instinctual desires of the id and the critical superego. In life, people don't always have a good balance between the three and their real-life ego takes over, swallowing everything else around it. In the second way of looking at the ego, we could think about the idea of egoism. What is that? Wikipedia defines egoism as the philosophy concerned with the role of the self or ego as the motivation and goal of one's own action. Different theories on egoism encompass a range of disparate ideas and can generally be categorized into descriptive or normative forms. That is, they may be interested in either describing that people do act in self-interest or prescribing that they should. Other definitions of egoism may instead emphasize action according to one's will rather than one's self-interest and furthermore posit that this is a truer sense of egoism. So that's egoism, and that's the ego and the superego. And then there's the idea of egocentrism. Egocentrism is the idea that I think about when I think about kids and their inability to realize that there is a whole world, a whole earth outside of them. And unfortunately, many adults think like this as well and don't grow up. Wikipedia defines egocentrism as the inability to differentiate between self and other. More specifically, it is the inability to accurately assume or understand any perspective other than one's own. Although egocentric behaviors are less prominent in adulthood, the existence of some forms of egocentrism in adulthood indicates that overcoming egocentrism may be a lifelong development that never achieves completion. Have you ever met someone egocentric? I believe you have. We all have. Adults appear to be less egocentric than adult than children because they are faster to correct from initially egocentric perspective than children, not because they are less likely to initially adopt an egocentric perspective. Therefore, egocentrism is found across the lifespan, in infancy, early childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. It contributes to the human cognitive development by helping children develop theory of mind and self-identity formation. Although egocentrism and narcissism appear similar, they are not the same. A person who is egocentric believes they are the center of attention, but does not receive gratification by one's own admiration. 
Both egotists and narcissists are people whose egos are greatly influenced by the approval of others, while for egocentrists this may or may not be true. This sounds like the classic child who is unaware of the whole large earth around them. Unfortunately, there are many adults who behave like this as well, and I have met many as well. We need to try to counteract such feelings within ourselves and those around us. Although we can't be too egotistical, we do need to realize that it's also important to have what's called a self-concept. And Wikipedia defines self-concept as one self-concept, also called self-construction, self-identity, self-perspective, or self-structure, as a collection of beliefs about oneself. Generally, self-concept embodies the answer to the question, who am I? Self-concept is made up of one's self-schemas. The way we look at the world, we look at ourselves and interacts with self-esteem, self-knowledge, and the social self to form the self as a whole. It includes the past, the present, and future selves, where future selves or possible selves represent individuals' ideas of what they might become, what they would like to become, or what they are afraid of becoming. Possible selves may function as incentives for certain behavior. Carl Rogers explains the three components. I remember learning about him a lot in psychology in the courses in undergrad. Wikipedia depicts that Carl Rogers, who was born on January 8, 1902, almost my birthday, to February 4, 1987, was an American psychologist and among the founders of the humanistic approach and client-centered approach in psychology. The person-centered approach, his own unique approach to understanding personality and human relationships, found wide application in various domains such as psychotherapy and counseling, client-centered therapy, education, student-centered learning, organizations, and other group settings. According to Carl Rogers, the self-concept has three different components. Number one, the view one has of oneself, otherwise known as self-image. How much value, number two, one places on oneself, self-esteem or self-worth. Number three, what one wishes one were really like, the ideal self. So it is important to realize we each have self-worth. We can contribute to the world utilizing our talents. But don't let any talents or, any, or the ability that you have get to your head or get to our heads. Lastly, there's the idea of egotism, which is a not a positive trait at all. As defined by Wikipedia, egotism is defined as the drive to maintain and enhance favorable views of oneself, generally features an inflated opinion of one's personal features and importance, distinguished by a person's amplified vision of oneself and self-importance. It often includes intellectual, physical, social, and other overestimations. The egotist has an overwhelming sense of the centrality of the me regarding their personal qualities, and this is the one that's closest related to narcissism or narcissists. Egotism is closely related to an egocentric love for one's imagined self or narcissism. Indeed, some would say by egotism we may envisage or envisage a kind of socialized narcissism. Egotists have a strong tendency to talk about themselves in a self-promoting fashion, and they may well be arrogant and boastful with a grandiose sense of their own importance. Everything is around me. Everything revolves around me. How can you do for me? Why don't you do this for me? Call me. Visit me. Do this for me. Their inability to recognize the accomplishments of others 
leaves them profoundly self-promoting, lacking empathy. While sensitivity to criticism may lead on the egotist part to narcissistic rage at a sense of insult. Egotism differs from both altruism, which is awesome, behavior motivated by the concern for others rather than for oneself, and from egoism, the constant pursuits of one's self-interest. Various forms of empirical egoism have been considered consistent with egotism, but do not, which is also the case with egoism in general, necessitate having an inflated sense of self. There are far too many people out there who define this idea to an alarmingly degree, and I have met many. We all have to rid this tendency on any form or any level of the egotism from our entire lives. It has to be destroyed completely, gone completely from yourself, from your spouse, from your kids, from your family members, from your friends, without any room for it anywhere. We need to do this by fine-tuning the skill of altruism, which is the opposite. Altruism is defined by Wikipedia as the principle and moral practice of concern for happiness, unconditional happiness, not do this for me, I'll do this for you, unconditional happiness of other human beings, especially family and friends, or other animals, resulting in a quality of life, both material and spiritual. It is a traditional virtue in many cultures and a core aspect of various religious and secular worldviews. However, the object or objects of concern vary among cultures and religions. In an extreme case, altruism may become a synonym of selflessness, which is the opposite of selfishness. We had a whole lecture, a whole sheer on selfish versus selfless. You could see that on the Tani Talks Live, formerly the lecture series, where we talk at length about that as well. Altruism in biological observations and field populations of the day organisms is an individual performing an action which is at a cost to themselves, such as pleasure and quality of life, time, probability of survival or reproduction, but benefits either directly or indirectly another individual without the expectation of reciprocity or compensation for that action. You do it just to be kind, no ulterior motive. Steinberg suggests a definition for altruism in the clinical setting that is intentional and voluntary actions that aim to enhance the welfare of another person in the absence of any quid pro quo external rewards. In one sense, the opposite of altruism is spite. A spiteful action harms another with no self-benefit. The term altruism may also refer to an ethical doctrine that claims that individuals are morally obliged obligated to benefit others. Used in this sense, it is usually contrasted with egoism, which claims individuals are morally obligated to serve themselves first. Effective altruism is the use of evidence and reason to determine the most effective ways to benefit others. Tzedakah, chesed, doing for others, caring for others, giving to others, generosity, we have a whole lecture on that as well, are quintessential actions of doing altruism for others, in my opinion. It brings to mind the idea espoused by Hillel in Pirkei Avod, Perak Aleph, Mishnah Yudalad. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago on the TTPA, but is one of the best, in my opinion, phrases in all of Pirkei Avos. Hu haya Omer. He used to say, who used to say, Hillel used to say, Em ain anili, mili. If I am not for myself, who is for me? So that would seem to direct us to say, oh, I have to be into myself. I have to have self-importance and self-concept and what are the like. Maybe I should have a little ego, but no. The next phrase teaches us, But if I am for my own self, only for myself, what am I? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? 
What can I get accomplished? I'm self-serving. I'm only taking care of myself. That's why I'm here. Absolutely not. One of the best phrases. If not, now when? All these people who got the INNW movement over the past decades and years, if not, now when, came from Perkeyavos hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years ago. They thought of it way before anyone else. No procrastination. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Do it now. If not now, when? We have to think of those around us. We can't be subsumed by our own egos and our own needs to inflate ourselves. Yes, we have to take care of ourselves, but we can't only focus on our own egos and our own lives. Also brings to mind the dictum in the Talmud in Shavuos. Kol Yisrael Raven Zelazah. All of Israel are guarantors for one another, guarantors for each other. The Talmud points out in Shavuos 39a. So what are we really doing here? What is our purpose? We have to contribute to the world around us. We are responsible for everyone around us. We have to chip into the greater whole of the Jewish people. Rabbi Goldstein points out on H.com, the Talmud teaches that every person should have an awareness that the world was created for me. Bishvili Nivra Olam, Sanhedrin 37a. Think about that for a minute. It's an extraordinary declaration that God created the world for you. And that if you were the only person on earth, the only person on earth, the entire creation of the cosmos would nevertheless be justified. It's not just an outstanding statement. It also gives us pause for thought. Surely, thinking of ourselves in these terms leads to extreme arrogance and literal self-centeredness, which are anti-ethical or anti or anti the whole idea of the Torah. Indeed, we know that humility is one of Torah's core values. The Rambam, Maimonides, points out that while with other character traits a person should follow the middle path, when it comes to humility, a person should go to the extreme. Arrogance, go to the opposite extreme and be extremely humble. Also the same thing with anger, go to the opposite extreme. Rashi, in his commentary to the Talmud, has an answer to this problem. He explains that the statement, the world was created for me, is to instill within the witnesses an awareness of their own greatness and preciousness before God, which in turn will inspire them to tell the truth, because to lie and perjure themselves in court is beneath them. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz applies this lesson more generally. He says one of the most important ways to inspire ourselves to do good in the world and be better people is to believe in our own inherent greatness and our own preciousness in the eyes of God. An awareness of our own greatness inspires us to become even greater and to hold ourselves to the highest standards of ethical behavior. From such a perspective, wrongdoing is simply beneath our dignity. And so we have within us this God-given greatness, this infinite potential, this divine dignity that comes with being created in our Creator's image, Salam Elohim. We hold within us the reason not just for our own existence, but for all existence. We need to be acutely aware of this fact because being aware of it will inspire us to do good, to be great, to reach heights we couldn't previously imagine. And being awake to our own divine potential, to our own preciousness in the eyes of the one who created us will help us avoid the pitfalls that so often obscure our own inner greatness to ourselves and to others. There's a light within us that's alive that we could turn on and shine out to the world. We need to know it's there. That awareness that the world was created for me can, with a healthy dose of humility, be the driving force for good in every aspect of our lives. We have a great responsibility to the world around us. Hashem created the world just for each of us. 
How can we be so concerned with our own selves, our own egos, when we are responsible for the world around us? Rebson Heller points out on H.com, in order for bread to rise, leavening must take place, catalyzed by the yeast. As oxidation occurs, air pockets develop. Nothing is added to the dough, but it gets bigger, swelled by the hot air. The force of ego is compared to the yeast in the dough. Ego persuades us that things and incidents of little real value are hugely significant. A party we were not invited to, a joke at our expense, the latest DVD player that our friend has but we cannot afford, all loom large in our consciousness. The reason we are so easily offended is that our own sense of adequacy is insubstantial as the hot air in the bread. We seek to fill our empty spaces with objects, titles, and transitory self-images of youth and trimness. Such ephemeral substance is easily deflated as the vicissitudes of life impinge on our egos, like the cakes baking in the oven when our mothers would warn us, don't jump in the kitchen. We posture and purchase to satisfy the hunger of our insatiable egos. We enslave ourselves. On Pesach, we eat matzah, which is called the better bread of freedom. Matzah consists of flour and water, which has not been allowed to leaven. This symbolizes the real substance and spirit that make us human, the eternal invulnerable soul that has not been corrupted by ego. This is our true self-definition. Preparatory to Passover, how do we rid ourselves of our chametz, our inflated self-definition? Rather than achieving this goal through introspection alone, which often makes us even more self-absorbed, we also attack the physical manifestations of chametz. Self-transformation in Judaism is based on the principle that human beings are changed from the outside in. What we do, not what we think, creates who we are. Thus, we could be filled with thoughts, aspirations, and intentions to be generous, but only when we put the money into the beggar's hand, the money into the pushka, the money where it belongs, do we actually start to become a generous person. That is why most of the commandments of the Torah are physical. The, hands program, the hand programs the mind and heart more effectively than the converse. Our pre-passive elimination of chametz affects our inner space far more permanently than it does our outer space. Passover can take us far beyond matzah, wine, and family worth. It can liberate us from our most subversive enemy, our fragile ego. Take the chametz out of our bodies and out of our souls. Be involved in giving to others, doing for others, in order to rid oneself of the ego. Rebson Tversky points out on H.com, the Hillel, the great sage of the Mishnah, refers to the essential I in the two comments noted above in the Mishnah from above. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? And But if I am for my own self only, what am I? Both comments suggest that it is the individual exclusively who must give life and definition to one's loftier godly self. Unquestionably, this is achieved by the choices one makes. If my better self is here, in charge, in control, driving my behavior, then everything is here. If I am not for myself, my essential self, giving expression to the purpose of my existence, who will do it? The ego, the lesser self, is prideful, territorial, arrogant, and totally absorbed in its desires and wants. Anger is a reaction of the ego to a perceived affront, a sense of diminution of its power. Frequent anger attacks or outbursts should be warning signals to the individuals that the lesser part of themselves has taken up too much space and dominion over their person. We have to do what we can to attack our own egos and work our, our own selves 
in the best way possible each and every day. Tamar Tabak explains on H.com, the ego is the part of the self that sees itself as a physical being, separate and distinct from all creation. Although it is true to some degree, since our bodies are separate from one another, it is not the whole truth, since our souls are intertwined in the matrix of all of life. The key is to release our identification with this aspect of our psyches that limit, constrict, and define us into rigid patterns of engagement and behavior, and rather approach other people with an awareness of our intrinsic connection. Leaving the illusion of the ego behind is what will enable us to do tshuva, to reconnect with others and God, and live according to our fullest potential. There's a great quote from Rabbi Winyard's Alava Shalom on H.com. It applies to relationships, especially spousal and children, and everything in life, really. Apologizing does not always mean that you're wrong and the other person is right. It just means that you value your relationship more than your ego. All too often, we think that we need to be right. We need to be puffing up ourselves and our ego. But really, that is not the case. We need to be more humble as much as we can and as much as we can do every single day. Rabbi Weinberg, Allah Vashon, explains on H.com, an arrogant person is mostly concerned with his own ego, his own pride, his own money. So even though he appears friendly and charming, he's really manipulating things to suit his selfish needs. Arrogance otherwise is known and said, I'm all that counts. Humility is known to be said then, as what's greater than me counts. Instead of saying, I'm all that counts, what's greater than me counts. Humility generates truth and objectivity. Humility is freedom. Your personality expresses itself in an organic, internally generated, and a more real way. Humility is pleasure, but arrogance is pain. Humility enables you to embrace others. Humility deepens your relationship with God. And until you know what you are willing to die for, you have not yet begun to live. A very famous quote, until you know what you're willing to die for, God forbid, you have not yet begun to live. So what is the choice, really, then? Do you really want to live? Do you really want to enjoy life and the world around us? There's really no choice in the matter. And Muna Braverman points out on H.H.com, when we give others credit, we subjugate our egos and demonstrate it's not only about me. This is the key to living in harmony with others. If we stand proud and arrogant, demanding our due, we crowd out others and impede the potential for unification. If we humbly make room for others and resist the pull of our ego, unity becomes a realistic goal. Taking unwarranted credit breeds distrust and torpedoes motivation. Taking the credit may give the ego a temporary sense of accomplishment, but that illusory feeling will eventually be lost in the toxic and unproductive workplace you've built. In fact, Pirkei Elvis teaches us one of the ways to wisdom is giving credit to others. We know that the Geula and the Perm story coming up in a couple of weeks teaches that really it started from giving credit to others. Mordechai said about Bigson and Seresh and saved the king's life. Esther said it shame Mordechai. And then Mordechai, in the middle of the night, when the king can't sleep, Bishnasa Laila, and the, I can't remember the verbiage, but in the middle of the night, the king can't sleep, and that meant maybe Hashem 
metaphorically, but also the king itself, Achashverosh. And who comes to save the day? Literally, the, the idea of remembering about Mordechai saving the day is what changes the whole story. And it was said in the name of Mordechai. Can you imagine if Esther didn't say that in the name of Mordechai? A key element could have been missing from the story. Literally giving credit where credit is due is so important. Could really bring Geula to the world. The Talmud points this out. Perka Elvis points this out. Don't take credit for someone else's work. Who wants to work for a boss who steals their efforts? Who wants to be innovative only to watch their supervisor reap the rewards? By taking unjustified credit, making your work a shrine to your ego, you undoubtedly hurt the originator of the idea, most probably your relationship with your colleagues. But the person most damaged is you. If you're ever giving a lecture, or you're ever writing anything, try to write down where you get it from. Try to mention where you get it from. And if you don't remember where you got it from, but you know it's not you, say, I don't remember where I heard this, but I know I heard it from somewhere else. I say that all the time when I don't remember where it comes from. Don't take unjustified credit. Don't always demand your due also. Don't always demand your name, your recognition. Stay out of the limelight. Stay in the background. Learn to live a little bit in anonymity. Learn a little bit to learn and to live in an anonymous nature. And Munna Braveman also points out on H.com the classic interpretation of the search for chametz, for leaven, and the elimination of it from our homes is that it represents ego. Ego can certainly enslave us. If it's all about me, then there's no room for you or God. It's impossible to have any relationships, friends, children, spouses, employees, if we see everyone as a tool to satisfy our needs, if we measure all interactions and activities in terms of how they affect us, if we're always looking for accolades and honor and approval, the ego is a psychological trap. Passover and really the world and the year at large all throughout the year is an opportunity to work on freeing ourselves. Don't just clean out your chametz for Pesach. Clean out your chametz, your unwanted leaven, your unwanted ego throughout your life, throughout your year, throughout your weeks, and throughout your days. Dr. Lieberman points out on H.com, when a person gives, he loves the object of his giving more, and so love is planted and grows. A child receives, and a parent gives. Who loves who more? The child cannot wait to get out of the house while the parent is forever concerned with the child's well-being. Every positive emotion stems from giving and flows outward from us to others, whereas every every single way, every time we give, that is real love. When we give, we give. That is the way to give out to others. Every negative emotion revolves around taking. Indeed, the root of the word ahava love is have to give. If you're on Zoom, we're going to end it and come right back. And we will continue. Don't worry. Come right back. When it comes to giving, when it comes to loving, loving is all about giving. You have to be able to really give. And when it comes to give, you have to give from giving without having anything that you want to have in return. You have to make sure to give, to give, just to give without thinking of anything in return. That's the best way to give in life. And that's the the, the root of the word give is hav. The word of the Hebrew word to give is hav. And the root of ahava, which is love, also is hav to give. When a person has very low self-esteem, it does not matter how accomplished he appears. Such a person is dependent upon everyone and everything to feed his ego. Be a real giver. Be a person involved with hav. The root of ahava, the root of love is to give unconditionally without 
this or that, saying, I'll give it to you because it's this or that. I'll give it to you because you were a good friend today. I'll give it to you. You're a good son, a good daughter today. Maybe it's for your birthday in 42 years. I'll give to you. You give unconditionally without any strings attached, giving day in and day out, not feeding the ego, not thinking about any alternatives, just to give because that's what a parent does. That's what a child does for his family, that's what a friend does, giving, giving, giving without anything in return. Otherwise, the ego is too much involved. Don't feed the ego. Be a real giver. Be a real have, giving day in and day out. Michael Levin points out on H.com, one mass message of Passover is humility, that God runs the world and that our own egos can keep us from connecting deeply with God and our fellow humans. The shift from bread to matzah symbolizes this point. Bread puffs itself up as if to say, Look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. Matz, on the other hand, is referred to as lechem oni, poor man's bread, lacking in the slightest shred of ego. Ego itself stands for edging God out. E-G-O. Ego. Edging God out. For believing that we, like Dr. Seuss's Yertle the turtle, are the rulers of all we could see. Of course, you know what happened to Yertle? If you haven't heard of the story of Yertle the turtle, I'll tell you. Wikipedia points out, Yertle the Turtle and Other Stories is a picture book collection by Theodore Seuss Geisel, published under his more commonly known pseudonym of Dr. Seuss. The eponymous story revolves around Yertle the Turtle, the king of the pond. Dissatisfied with the stone that serves as his throne, always rhyming in Dr. Seuss, he commands the other turtles to stack themselves beneath him so that he can see farther and expand his kingdom. However, the stacked turtles are in pain. A turtle named Mac, who has a checkerboard-style shell and is at the bottom of the pile, is bearing the brunt of the suffering. Mac asks Yertle for a respite, but Yertle just tells him to be quiet. Then Yertle decides to expand his kingdom and commands more and more turtles to add to his throne. Mac makes a second request for a respite because the increased weight is now causing extreme pain and hunger to the turtles at the bottom of the pile. Again, Yertle yells at Mac to be quiet. Be quiet! Then Yertle notices the moon rising above him as the night approaches. Furious that something dares to be higher than Yertle the king, he decides to call for even more turtles in an attempt to rise above it. However, before he can give the command, Mac decides he has had enough. He burps, which shakes up Yertle's throne and tosses the turtle king off the turtle stack and into the water, leaving him king of the mud and freeing the others. That's the Yertle the Turtle story. But in the article by Michael Levin on H.com, we think about egos in terms of Yertle and other people, real characters and imagined characters. If Passover asks us to set aside our egos and recognize that something greater than ourselves is in charge, why can't we set aside our ego-based disputes with family members or friends and put those disputes where they belong? In the past. The problem is that everyone's waiting for everyone else to take that all-important first step. In other words, someone has to take the first step, even when the deep waters of disagreement are swirling. Because sometimes we just need to take that first step. We need to be the one to shake up the kingdom, shake up the turtles, throw the king into the mud. We need to take that first step, whether it be a friend or a business contact, someone you haven't talked to in 20 years and someone you haven't talked to in 20 minutes. We need to take the step and put the ego aside. Miriam Katz points out on H.com, We eat this bread of poverty on Seder night to remind us that we are what we eat. 
On the night of our redemption from Egypt, we partake of the barest essence of bread in order to identify with the very foundation of our being. The whole point of matzah is that it's impossible to have a 15-minute monologue about its subtle flavors and delicate texture. We don't eat matzah as a gastronomical indulgence. We eat it to connect to our innermost essence, which is where our true freedom lies. Eating matzah reminds us that our core self stands independent from all the enriched ingredients of our lives. Our truest identity is not connected to the wealth we have accumulated, our social status, our homes, or any other artificial additives. Real freedom tastes like matzah. Although the world we live in proclaims itself to be liberated, Judaism has celebrated a different kind of liberty for thousands of years. The freedom of Passover is the freedom of knowing who we truly are. A liberty from false perceptions of self. And this is a freedom we are all hungry for. We can make ourselves free from the slavery to our ego, little by little, day by day. Dr. Morindis points out on H.com, identity is not the main feature of our inner being. Despite the ego's insistent and noisy protest, to the contrary, the ego claims to be king, but we can liken its true role to that of valet. When it is put firmly in that role, serving the soul of infinite depth as its master, our lives become aligned in a profound way we, we could hardly previously imagine. Each of us is a soul. That's who we are. With only limited exceptions, everything that exists in our inner world is an aspect of soul, including personality, emotions, talents, desires, conscience, wisdom, and so on. Even the faculties we ordinarily assign to the mind, like thought, logic, memory, and forgetting, are features of the soul. We are more powerful than our ego. It's time to show our egos who really is boss. Rabbi Pakuz on H.com explains an excerpt from Real Power from David Lieberman. Within human beings, three inner forces exist and are often at odds with each other. The body, the ego, and the soul. In short, the body wants to do what feels good. The ego wants to do what looks good. And the soul wants to do what is good. When the alarm clock goes off in the morning, the three forces all battle it out. If we hit the snooze button, which I am guilty and many of us are, guess who won the first round? Doing what is easy or comfortable is a body drive. Examples of overindulgences of this force are overeating or oversleeping. In effect, doing or not doing something we know we should or should not do. Merely because of how it feels. Basically, the body just wants to escape from it all. An ego drive can run the gamut from making a joke at someone else's expense to buying a flashing car that is beyond our means. When we are motivated by ego, we do things that we believe project the right image of ourselves. The choices are not based on what is good, but on what makes us look good. If we cannot control ourselves and we succumb to immediate gratification or strive to keep up an image, then we become angry with ourselves and feel empty inside. To compensate for these feelings of guilt and inadequacy, the ego engages and we become egocentric. As a result, our perspective narrows and we see more of the self and less of the world. This makes us increasingly more sensitive and unstable. We only gain self-esteem when we are able to make responsible choices and do what is right, regardless of what we feel like doing or how it appears to others. This is a soul choice. In turn, we rise to a higher and healthier perspective because self-esteem and the ego are inversely related. Are inversely related like a seesaw. When one goes up, the other goes down. While our mood will inevitably fluctuate as a result of our circumstances, our emotional well-being remains largely immune from conditions and experiences of all types, positive and negative. 
Research indicates that big lottery winners often lead miserable lives after their windfall. A statistically uneven number of suicides, murders, drunk driving arrests, divorces, even bankruptcies that befall winners, quote-unquote, have led to studies of a lottery curse. People find it difficult to comprehend why such misfortune follows those who suddenly become so fortunate. The reason is quite clear. Since self-esteem comes from making good choices, we, with instant money or instant fame, now have more ammunition for greater unconstructive behavior and indulgences. When we make bad choices, it can tremendously lessen our self-esteem. Logic, therefore, dictates that we are in control of ourselves and act responsibly. If we do so, we can never be deeply bothered by anyone or anything. We are not a casualty of anything other than our own behavior because nothing affects us. We affect everything. We must remain in the driver's seat, in control, making the right, responsible choices in our daily lives and in the battle against the ego. Rabbi Simmons points out on H.com, it all comes down to ego. Every action of a Jewish leader must be for the good of the people alone. The Torah tells a Jewish leader, don't fall into the trap. Keep your perspective. Don't forget you are a servant of the people, not the other way around. This defines the precise difference between Paro and Moshe. We just saw the Jewish people leaving Egypt. A person's ability to ignore reality and even destroy the world is tested most when his ego is at stake. The more power, the more likely the danger. Imagine the eternal struggle when a world leader has to admit, I am wrong. There's a force greater than me that I cannot control. Paro cannot acknowledge the supremacy of God. Whereas a true Jewish leader is by definition subjugated to the will of God. King David writes in Psalms and Tehillim the secret of humility, Zivche Elokim Ruach Nishbara. The sacrifice the Almighty wants is a humble spirit. That's it. King David is telling us that the battle of life is to acknowledge that God to acknowledge God as the supreme ruler and appreciate all he does for us. Ultimately it's not in your hands. We make the effort, but God signs the checks. Submit to the true belief that Hashem is the one ultimate true power. We are truly powerless, and it's all up to Hashem. All we can do is put in Hishtad Lut, but there's no more room for ego when we think and realize that God is in control. Rabbi Torsky Lavashalom points out on H.com, We may feel an urge to make a public declaration of some worthy deed, but when we do it primarily to serve our ego, it is as unwise as it is unnecessary. When we do good deeds, the feeling of achievement that they bring should be reward enough. We should not need the acclaim of others to tell us that what we have done is good. We should know it ourselves. We would do well to leave the noise making to the proverbial empty kettles. We should try every day to do whatever we feel is necessary for the good of the community without any fanfare. Try to internalize that. Keep good deeds as quiet as possible. Rabbi Boxbaum points out on H.com, the element of fire is also the root of pride and arrogance. As one becomes successful in life and overcomes obstacles, it is natural to start experiencing the swelling of the ego, which can lead one to believe that they are better than everyone else. Sometimes the fire can become a consuming fire, looking to destroy others who are perceived as threats. We must learn how to use the element of fire to fearlessly rise to the top, but to remain modest and humble in the process. One can develop a healthy self-esteem by internalizing the following three mindsets. Number one, self-worth. I am worth something because I am a spark of God. I have a selim elokim, a pentalum elokim inside of me, a spark of God. I am worthy and have every right to live an amazing life. 
Number two, self-acceptance. I completely accept myself for who I am. I understand that my strengths and my weaknesses are not of my own doing, but are a gift from God. My strengths and my weaknesses are a gift from God for me to work with, to work on, and to develop. And number three, self-confidence. I have the ability to succeed in life and become great because I am created in the image of God. I can overcome any obstacles that come my way and have nothing to be afraid of. If someone has a good self-worth defined in the Judaic way, a good self-acceptance defined in the Judaic way, and a good self-confidence in the Judaic way, you can really conquer anything. These three lessons are key for us to think about and internalize. Rabbi Levine points out on H.com, Chameitz, talking a lot about Pesach, don't get too anxious, Pesach is not for quite a while, just good to think about Chameitz versus Matzah in general. Chameitz, the air that puffs up dough into bread, is the ego. Just as Chameitz makes bread look bigger than it is without adding any substance, so to an ego filled with self-importance is ultimately nothing but hot air. How do we remove the ego? The answer is through the seemingly mundane act of Passover cleaning and in general cleaning ourselves. On Pesach, we take the candle and shine it in the darkest hidden cracks, exposing the chametz. When we look at ourselves through the lens of the soul, we expose the chametz hiding within and recognize it is a puffed-up illusion. Once exposed, it goes up in smoke. Passover is a season of freedom, but throughout the year you could feel freedom. Freedom can only come if you have released yourself from being a slave to your ego. If your ego has you in a death hold, if you run after success because you think only success will make you happy, if you need other people's praise and reassurance to feel okay about yourself, you are enslaved. If you can't control your anger or you're trapped by your fears, then you aren't free. Burning away the chametz of your personality frees you to the life of the soul. There's another spiritual idea that comes from chametz that when understood teaches the true nature of the ego. Chametz is nothing but the puffed up matzah. What chametz is actually made out of is nothing less than matzah itself. So too there's an idea that ego is nothing but a corrupt, twisted desire that actually has its basis in a drive coming from the soul. For example, the soul only wants to give to help humanity and fix the world. The ego's twisted version of this, of the noble drive, is the desire for power and control. The urge to conquer the world, not help humanity and fix the world. The soul wants to connect with the divine. The ego wants to twist that to use spirituality to serve its needs. And that's the basis for idol worship. We should never know from such things. But nowadays, unfortunately, there are different types of idol worship, whether the worship of fame, worship of money, worship of the wrong type of role models, etc. Worship of sports, entertainment, etc. The soul wants to connect with other people meaningfully. The ego corrupts this desire into a drive to manipulate and take from people. So use the soul in the right way. By seeing that often the ego is nothing but a corruption of a noble desire, we can easily move past it and choose to be truly free. So make sure to choose to be truly and really free. Rabbi Levine also points out on com. it's 9.15 a.m. Picture the scene. Scene, set, stage, act one. 9.15 a.m. on an ordinary Monday. You're more than a little late. The kids couldn't get out of bed, couldn't get dressed in time. You couldn't get on the road. 9.15. The traffic is thick. You're still a long way from the office. The driver in front of you stops to speak to a pedestrian. You watch as they chat and they chat and they chat away. You wait another 20 seconds, another 20 seconds. You tap your horn lightly. The driver turns to give you a dirty look. 
That's it. You fly into a rage, slamming your horn and yelling. What are you doing, you schnook? You consider ramming him from behind and calculate the projectile. You grab around searching for something sharp, object to throw. You're on the edge of your of your anger. You're seeing red. You're so, so, so angry. You're so late. People are watching. You don't care. Then the pedestrian turns and looks at you quizzically. You notice he has a dog. It is a seeing eye dog. You stop honking your horn. You have just had another encounter with your ego. Your ego, referred to in Hebrew as the Yetzer Hara, the Yetzer Hara, the destructive force is the self-centered, immediate gratification at any cost part of your personality. The mystical sources say the Yetzirah covers your essence like mud on a windshield. It is given to you at birth and it dies with you at death. It stays with you your entire 120 years. In the interim, it wreaks havoc. It speaks to you in the first person saying things like, If someone gets more recognition and honor than me, I'll just die. I don't really have to prepare for the meeting. Maybe I'll catch a movie. Just one more piece of double chocolate cheesecake. That will be it. The ego has no compassion for where others are coming from, and it's always there when you are stressed out, angry, or upset. Even when you're calm, it's still there. When you look back at your life on all the stupid, rash decisions you made, be assured your ego was doing the talking and acting. The question is, though, if your ego is so terrible, why is it there? Think about the last time you had road rage. You were making a catastrophe out of nothing. The job of the ego is to make things seem bigger than they actually appear. Why? In order to challenge the soul to strengthen itself and make the ego disappear. The secret of overcoming the ego is having clarity that it is only an illusion. The Torah says that the ego is like a giant man holding a battle axe who is standing in front of you at a crossroad. The fool is frightened and runs for his life. The wise person looks closely ever so closely, and sees that the giant has no feet. He walks right past him. That's the ego. All bark, no bite. To the degree that you can recognize the ego as a giant virtual mirage, you will be able to see through the mirage and increase the frequency of experiencing life through the soul. If the ego is the mud on lens of the soul, then this clarity is the water that washes it away. Ask yourself at any given time, Where is this thought coming from? My ego or my soul? Where is this thought coming from? My ego or my soul? If it's from your ego, see that it is distorting reality. Choose to doubt its validity. If it's coming from the soul, run with it. Don't let the mud on the windshield of your life get in the way of having a clear vision of a clear day and a clear life. Clean the windshield of your life from the gook that is the ego. Now, Tully Silberberg points out on Chabad.org that true humility is not a result of an undervaluation of one's talents and accomplishments. It's very easy to say, okay, so I'm, I'm a nothing. My ego is taking everything away. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nincompoop. I got nothing to do in this life. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have a balance. We're supposed to have the self-worth but not get inflated by our self-worth. It's like a balancing act. We have to be in the middle. True humility is not undervaluating your talents or your accomplishments. You don't think Moshe Rabbeinu knew he was Moshe Rabbeinu? You don't think Rabbi Feinstein knew he was Rabbi Feinstein? 
Such is a false humility, for it is built on a false foundation. Rather, the truly humble individual is keenly aware of all his strengths and qualities, but simultaneously recognizes that all these talents are given from God, and therefore do not constitute a reason to feel superior to another whom God has not bequeathed such talents. The humble person would think, perhaps if that person had been blessed with the same gifts, he would have accomplished the same as me, perhaps even more. On a deeper level, the person who is entirely devoted to fulfilling the will of his creator of God is naturally egoless because he has no personal ambition. His goal is only to further God's agenda on this world. While arrogance is a sense of self-importance, dedication to God means realizing that life isn't about the individual or what he wants. It's about serving a higher purpose. So recognize your talents, but don't let that recognition run away from you. Don't let that recognition become a dancing ego machine. Rabbi Solomon points out a fascinating story on Ish.com in relation to a book he wrote, and he talks about it in the first person. So indulge the story and realize we're talking from Rabbi Solomon's perspective in this story. My ego and I were trekking down Coney Island Avenue some weeks ago when we chanced past Berman's, one of the local Judaica bookshops. This was not an uncommon occurrence. My ego and I often travel together as we do share assorted common interests and pursuits. I was not surprised, therefore, when he turned to me and said, Lots of books in Berman's window, but where is yours? Predictably, I gulped. It was not the first time I had noticed the glaring omission in the window. But, for some reason, this time I decided to venture inside. Maybe, they don't even sell my book? I had to find out. I meandered my way past the CDs, the art school Talmud volumes, and some genuine customers, and parked myself at the new releases section. There were several copies of my book. Ah, Baruch Hashem. Relieved, I lifted one of them and tried very hard to appear like an ordinary book browser. Secretly, I hoped that others might take notice, take the hint, and also take a peek at my book. They did not. But I didn't stop there. This is my book, I offered to the young sales clerk. How's it selling? He replied, okay, I guess. I don't really know. He replied without looking up. I did not stop there. I know this sounds a little funny. It didn't. I stammered, but, but, but my kids are always asking me why my book is not in the window. It felt kind of pathetic. Here I was, a grown man, practically begging to see my book in the window display. But it worked. No problem, he answered. Go ahead, slip one in. I did. Ten seconds later, I was back on the sidewalk, reunited with my ego and proudly peering at the newly adorned window. Frankly, it looked good. In fact, the whole display window somehow seemed brightened by the new addition. Yeah, right. I smiled too broadly and scampered home. Fast forward a few days. I'm on my way to the drugstore for a Diet Snapple. Again, this is the author talking. I do not drink Diet Snapple. And as I walk past Berman's, my eyes automatically dart to the right for a quick and proud glance at my book in the window. Only one problem. It isn't there. It's gone. My book had been replaced by, 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 by some, some other book, the name of which I forgot instantly. I stood there in mortal silence, pretending that it didn't matter, wondering what to do next. I felt like I had been duped. The clerk who had instructed me to put the book in the window had in fact only been humoring this pitiable and desperate soul. As soon as I left the scene, he promptly removed my book 
and restored it to its rightful place buried on a lonely, dusty shelf. I continued my lonely journey to the drugstore, but my pace had now slowed considerably, and my shoulders probably dropped an inch or two as well. I wasn't sure what I was more upset about, the book having been removed or the fact that it bothered me. Either way, I wasn't a pretty sight. Arriving at the store, I headed straight for the refrigerator. I half expected them to be out of my favorite flavor, but I was wrong. I snatched the bottle off the shelf, trudged over to the checkout counter. The girl behind the register was unfamiliar to me. She rang up my Snapple and counted some change. This simple transaction was about to end. But then she looked at me, and with just a few words, she transformed my paltry purchase into a mood-altering event. What the angel taught you, right? She said. She had uttered the title of a previous book the author wrote and recognized him as the author. He tried to stop his grin, but it was of no use. Why, er, yes, how did you know? Oh, I've heard you speak many times. I always watch your weekly video blog on H.com. It's wonderful. Again, the author talking, not me. Besides, I've read your book seven times. You're my favorite author. If the Snapple hadn't been on the counter, it would have skidded out of his hand, out of my hand, into a thousand shards on the floor. There wasn't much I could say. I just stood there dumbfounded with the stupid grin growing wider and probably straightening my tie or something like that. I thanked her a bit more than I should have and told her about my new book. She seemed excited, promised to pick one up right away. Collecting my drink, I awkwardly marched to the exit. Like a yo-yo on steroids, my psyche had just pummeled and exalted, beaten and hoisted and crushed and invigorated, all within a few seconds. It reminded the author of the credo of a great Hasidic leader. I believe it was Rav Mendel of Kutsk, he says, and that might be true. It was said that he lived his life according to two major philosophies. This is very famous. One was the declaration by Avraham of supreme humility when he prayed to Hashem for the welfare of the people of Sodom. In Bereshit, Yilchet, Chavzayin, for I am but, but dust and ash. And he offer ve'efer, I am dust and ash. The second was the dictum of our sages of the Talmud, we said before, of ultimate responsibility. It is incumbent upon everyone to say, the entire world was created just for me. So one dictum, I am but dust and ash. The other dictum, the entire world was created for me. Those closest to Rav Mendel said he wrote each passage on a separate piece of paper. He kept both papers with him all the time in separate pockets. The complexities of living require the implementation of both schools of thought, he would teach. Sometimes we must feel like we are so very small. Other times we must realize that the entire universe revolves around each of us. The secret of life is to know when to reach into which pocket. The events of that day thrown me from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other, or the author states, and both of these reactions were ego-driven. I'd allowed the perception of others to completely dictate my equilibrium. I was just a frail reed blowing in a gust of vanity. Contrast that insecurity with the sanguine mentality of the Rebbe. He taught that it is our inner choice that should dictate how we feel, not external opinions. There are times we should focus on the inherent objective greatness that resides in each and every soul. Feeling empowered to put our unique stamp in the world. There are times when we should have the humility to sense our inherent smallness. These emotions can never emerge from the reactions of those around us. We cannot allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by rejection or intoxicated by the limelight. Instead, when we feel small, it is a healthy realization without a supreme being, we can accomplish nothing. When we feel big, it is because our potential for change and growth is truly endless. Tell that to your ego. Next time you travel together. 
The ego is always waiting, always lurking, always ready to pounce. I know my ego has been battling me for decades. Maybe the idea of the two papers is a simple solution to keep the ego in check. I am but dust and ashes. And for me, the world was created. Balancing the two parts out of your two pockets in your own life to have proper self-worth, but not to get overinflated. Listen to this great story from Nisano Saffron on H.com. Barry, could you please bring out another tray of desserts? Asked Wally, the head waiter, in his typical patient way. But Barry Solomon didn't hear a thing. His mind was still spinning from the post he had just seen in the dining room. The great one, J.J. Stone, his hero and favorite singer in the whole world, was not only going to be performing at the hotel where Barry was working as a waiter for the summer, but was going to be staying there for two whole weeks as a guest entertainer. Barry, the ice cream parfaits are going to melt, pleaded Wally. The boy finally woke up from his fog. Sorry, boss, he said, grabbing the dessert tray, speeding them out to the waiting guests. When he got back to the kitchen, Barry had only one thing on his mind. Please, Wally, I'll do whatever you want. Work double time, triple time. Just let me be the great one's private waiter, please. At first, his boss tried to put him off, explaining how it might be a lot of extra work and the like. But Barry didn't care. Anything was worth being able to spend two weeks so close to someone so great and seeing his famous billion-dollar smile up close every day. Finally, after much begging, cajoling, and just plain nudging, Barry succeeded and it looked like his dream was coming true. That evening, Barry made sure to put on his cleanest and shiniest waiter's uniform. He had even ironed it himself. Boy, would his mom ever faint if she knew he had done that. He grabbed three menus for JJ and his two guests sitting in the dining area of the VIP suite. And with his brightest smile, not as bright as JJ's world-famous one, but pretty bright nonetheless, he excitedly entered the luxurious room certain he was about to begin what would be the greatest summer of his life. In fact, it ended up being one of the worst. Not only didn't JJ bother looking up at him even once that evening, but he seemed to be doing whatever he could to be making Barry's life miserable. He kept snapping his fingers at him. And had him running back and forth to the kitchen so many times to fulfill his special request that the boy thought he was going to collapse from exhaustion. One time he even angrily made Barry run all the way back with his fruit cup because it had seven cherries and not the eight that J.J. demanded. Barry just didn't get it. J.J. was always smiling on the covers of his discs and acted so sweet during his performances. But in private, he just acted like a big spoiled grouch without a smile in sight. In the main hotel dining room, the guests were usually very nice to Barry and thanked him for his work, but J.J. never said a single word of thanks to him. But boy, did he explode if he didn't get it exactly right. He figured maybe things would get better over time, but they only got worse, and before long, Barry was dreading every meal. Wally felt sorry for Barry and tried his best to help him out, even taking time out from his own busy schedule to help him bring things up to J.J., But the singer just never seemed to be satisfied. Whatever they did was never good enough for him. One evening, Wally greeted Barry with a big smile. Well, I guess you'll be wanting the night off tonight, he said. Barry looked up at him from the salad bar he was arranging. Why? he asked. Come on, you mean you forgot what night it is? It is JJ's big grand finale concert in the main ballroom. I'll take over your extra work tonight. Take this and go have a good time. Wally smiled and handed Barry a free special concert pass. I got this for you in appreciation for all your hard work this summer. Barry looked at the ticket, but instead of taking it and running off, he put it down and strapped on his waiter's apron. 
Hey, what are you doing? asked Wally. Don't you want to see the great one tonight? The boy smiled and said, Yes, that's why I'm staying here, to be with someone great. You. Wally laughed. Ha, 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 me, great? I'm not famous like J.J., I'm a nobody. No way, said Barry. J.J. may be famous and sing great, but he's not truly great. One big lesson I learned this summer is that if a person cares about others and treats them right, like you do, Wally, then he's really great, whether he's famous or not. From now on, I'm sticking with you. We think that the famous people, the entertainers, the big shots are the role models, but it couldn't be any more opposite. The truth is, the reality is, it is just the opposite. They're all charlatans. They're all fake. They're all fluff. There's no real matzah inside. They're all chametz. They're full of overinflated ego, lacking any real substance. In real life, they have horrible manners. They have horrible morals, lack of morals. They do crazy things. Why would anyone idolize these people? Why do people idolize actors and actresses, musicians, entertainers, performers, sport players, and the like? In true life, they act like scum. In real life, they may be and probably are terrible people with little or no morals. We need to look up to the true hero, the true role models, and God willing, in the future, we're going to take a hiatus, but God willing, in a future episode, we plan to talk about the meaning of a role model. Those of Jewish leaders in history and currently, the real mention, the people with real menschlichkeit, real derech eretz, and wonderful people with wonderful qualities. Don't let ego get in your way. Don't let ego ever have the day. Make sure to throw the ego away. Make sure you can look at yourself in the mirror. Tell yourself, hey, what's with the ego? And throw it away deep and far to be away, not just for today, but for every day to stay far, far away. In fact, there are some fascinating sources that talk about it itself. In Brachos 10b, one who sees his own bodily needs by eating and drinking before prayer casts God aside. According to his arrogance and ego, priority over God. The Yismach Yisrael in the Haggadah talks about how all wisdom is already present in his heart, but it's only through a state of submission of one's ego that one becomes worthy of learning Torah freely. The Yismach Yisrael also talks about in the Haggadah, by sincerely performing the mitzvah, we will be less focused on our own ego. We'll be able to enter into the presence of God. The Kedusha Slavi in Bamidbar talks about how Moshe had attained a level he could completely divest himself of ego as when he said of both himself and his brother Aaron a very famous, very amazing statement. Venach Numa! What do we as personalities amount to? What are we? Nothing. Like Avraham. On the offer of Afer. I am like dust and ashes. Rabbeinu Bahaya points out in Baratius, from here we should learn, if a person receives praise, he should not allow this to inflate his ego. On the contrary, should act even more humbly than previously. Kedos Yitzchak points out, God, by dispatching truth earthwards, prepared the way through Torah so as to minimize the power of the ego. Shnei Luchot Abris talks about in the Torah Shabbat and Bo, the good urge, the Yetzir Tov, causes man to remain low, deflated, whereas the evil urge, the Yetzir causes people to inflate their ego. Humility results in piety, freedom from sin, whereas an inflated ego leads to the opposite. Yismach Yisrael points out elsewhere in the Haggadah, only by humbling ourselves and abnegating our ego can we gain the merit of simple faith, for the lowly person sees the exaltedness of God. Returning, the daily inspiration for the days of all points out, we often want to resolve a conflict but are not willing enough to squelch a bloated ego and say sorry, like we talked about earlier. And the Kedah Yitzchak points out elsewhere, the third request, forgive us our Lord, for we have sinned, requests assistance to our ego problems, which are the root cause of committing sins. Crisis in faith talks about an ego loss. When the ego controls, dissolved in a milieu of trust, the world within is a glowing, serene, and meaningful. 
And the Daily Inspiration from Days of Old also talks about the stress of lying in bed, stewing over an insult, or patching a bruised ego can shorten one's life. If not in actual duration, then definitely in quality. The Flames of Faith talks about on Shabbos and in general we are to empty our minds of the inflated ego that stems from material accomplishment. And the Shnei Luchot Abris talks about Torah Shabbat and Va'et Hanan, when a person is preoccupied with advancing his ego in this world in any shape or form, he does so at the expense of, of ne- neglecting his love for God and becomes guilty of neglecting to fulfill the commandments. Because at the end of the day, the point is that all too often we are running after honor. We're seeking to fulfill ourselves in selfish ways. We're chasing after our own coattails instead of trying to do real good in this world. Remember, this life is not all about you. You are here to use your talents to do much good in the world without asking for reciprocation. Give like the root of Ahava, the root of love is to give. Give without conditions. Give to everyone in your life. Don't have that ego, but do understand you're here to do much good in the world, to get much accomplished. Yes, the world was created for me, but I am dust and ashes. Remember that you are here to do good. You can recognize your talent, but don't run away with that talent thinking that it's all from you. It's all from Hashem. We're all destined for greatness. If you do much in this lifetime, don't let it get to your head. Make sure to find the true heroes and leaders to emulate. Do not emulate those that in real life have terrible morals, lacking morals, or have nothing of substance to give to you. Look up to the real true hero, the real true role models, those of Jewish leaders in the history, and currently the real ones with Derek Heretz, wonderful people with wonderful qualities. Don't let ego get in your way. Don't let ego ever have the day. Make sure to throw the ego away. Make sure you can look at yourself in the mirror. Tell yourself, hey, What's with this ego? What's with the ego? Throw it away. Deep down the drain to be gone forever. May it maybe in that way we could all start the next phase of true freedom. May it speedily come in our days and let that day be today. This has been the TTL Tiny Talks Life where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. God willing, we'll see you back here after the hiatus in a couple episodes in a little while. This is the TTL and I'm your host, Tani.